Somebody's offered a question this evening which says, Sometimes shoots of hatred come up from inside, and this can feel very intimidating, as if I might crack open. I just let them come, but why do they still come up after years of practice? I imagine there's all sorts of explanations of why these shoots of anger keep coming up after years of practice, but that wouldn't be the place that I would start uh, contemplating it. I would look first at whether or not we're entertaining the idea or the attitude uh, that it shouldn't be this way. And, of course, I'm not talking about indifference to the torturous feelings of rage that are lurking around and threatening to crack us apart. I can't feel indifferent about it. But there's a surely there's a big difference between being interested in being free from such suffering and demanding that we be free from such suffering. And in your case, uh, there may not be that demand, but that would be the place that I would start. And I, I think I want to highlight that because it's a, it's a very important aspect of, of any contemplation that we're doing. If we're trying to undo any tangle that we find ourselves caught in, uh, we can go quite a long way along uh, exerting effort and contemplating our predicament, uh, all the time harbouring a view, an attitude of resistance. Yeah. We're resisting the reality. We're saying it shouldn't be this way. And that obviously has a big effect on the outcome. Yeah, that resistance. Yeah. I spoke a few weeks ago about uh, that example of the, the man in Beijing who fell in the, in the pit, and the, you know, the pit caved in around him, and he didn't panic, and his non-resistance to it was what saved him. And non-resistance is not the same thing as acquiescence. You know, it's not giving in. Yeah, so this person says, I let, it, I let the anger come, but why is it still coming? Well, I would encourage feeling for resistance. That'd be, I would go a very long way with that, spend a long time on that. Because if we're not resisting reality, it's just what's happening. 
That's just what we're working with. Is that when we do resist reality, what happens? We resist the reality of anger or whatever's going on, and the energy comes up and then goes in our head, and then we start thinking, why, this, this happened in the past, and maybe it's going to last this way forever, and the energy's got to burn itself out in creating stories. But if we don't resist the reality, and this is it, this is what I feel, even the feeling of maybe I'm going to crack open, yeah, even that's already left home base and created a story. Yeah. We haven't cracked open. That's yeah. The fear, yeah, we can be with that. And if we don't resist the reality, then they can, even in the midst of feeling threatened by something like uh, rage or anger, there can be an okayness to that. Even a clarity. Um, I've just come back from two weeks on R&R. I think many of you heard that I, or I told you that I went away with Ajahn Chandapalo to a nice quiet corner of the Mediterranean with some good Italian friends and and spent two weeks on uh, relaxation and reflection. That's what R&R means, in case you had any doubts. A very nice, a very, very nice place. I've been there before, and Ajahn Chandapala and I are good friends from way back, and and it was good to have some quiet time to relax and to reflect on things. And there was one evening, uh, Ajahn Chandapala and I went for a walk around the bay, and I, there was um, some noise going on around the point where we were walking. And, it actually sounded to me like uh, the Maori haka, you know, like the, the, the All Blacks do before they, they you know, uh, that's not really what the haka is about, but that's, uh, it's been ritualized with the, the All Blacks before they play the rugby. And, and it sounded like that. And as we got closer, it turned out that uh, it was Croatia playing Austria in uh, the European Cup. And Austria wasn't doing very well. I don't know if any of you followed this. Apparently it was a bit of a shock. Uh, Croatia did very well, and so these uh, Croatian, Croatian young men and women were really living it up big time, and uh, they were they were drunk as skunks, quite frankly, they <laughs> really off their faces, and uh, chanting away, and I, so there was a little kind of tribal stuff going on there, that's what the noise was. Anyway, as we went by, one of the guys came out, and he seemed very friendly, and given his state of inebriation, we engaged in quite a a, a subtle contemplation together. But then a group of his friends came out and, and they weren't pleased to see us at all. Uh, in fact, they were making it very clear that we were not welcome and pretty pretty, uh, pretty rough fellows. And uh, they left. There was, there was no doubt, actually, in Ajahn Chandapala's mind that uh, we needed to move quite quickly. So we did. But the interesting thing I found after that little encounter was... Not, uh, not any sort of you know, disappointment. You know, there's a, there, I remember a time in the past when I come across such situations. In fact, it's always been that way. I never really enjoyed drunken mobs. Uh, and, uh, I've never found it very attractive. And I remember in the past feeling very disappointed with, with coming across such things. And, but this time I just think, well, you know, what do you expect? This is, this is what the human realm is like. This is what human beings do. 
And they contrasted rather nicely with, as I said, you know, perceptions, feelings and attitudes I've had in the past, which basically implied a judgment. It shouldn't be this way. You know, people shouldn't be doing this. Well, this is what people do. This is what human beings do. They've always done it. And they do it now. And there is a, a certain theme in, in New Age philosophy that talks about the evolution of consciousness. And uh, I'm not a, a great follower of this, this philosophy. I, my own understanding of the evolution of consciousness is, as the Buddha laid it out, that, that there's uh, Petujanas and, and then there's Sotapanas and Sakadagami, Anagami, Arahants. This is the evolution of consciousness. And, and uh, it's happening for individuals. And the um, increased sophistication of, of uh, behavior of human beings is, is really in my view, not more than, much more than a, a veneer of, um, of culture. And you take away, take away that veneer and it's not very far before you reach the raw reality of, of very untamed, wild human passions. And this is the way human beings are. This is what human beings do. And when we encounter this, whether it's ex externally or internally, this rage, this anger, or this greed, desire, these passions, we can say it shouldn't be this way, um, and, and we can we can we can resist the reality. But there's also another option, and that's that's what all our talk, all this talk about mindfulness, all this encouragement about here and now, judgment-free body-mind awareness is about. That we can receive the reality, even the reality of, of our own uh, threatening, apparently threatening rage or passion, whatever it is. And if we do receive it in the right way, we're not giving in, we're not giving up, we're not agreeing, but we're with it, we're not losing our perspective, our own centre, our own clarity, but we're here with it, then there is a shift in relationship. There's a letting go happens, and we understand something. And there can even be, as I said, there can be a peace with the drunken Croatian football fans or with our own inner turmoil. And from that peace, there can be another level of contemplation. You know, many times I've told the story of the situation when I was a young monk and I had the uh, operation on my knees and I, was, I played the hero and even though the doctors advised me to do one knee at a time, I said, no, you know, do them both, doctor. And, and so uh, you know, it didn't turn out as I'd hoped. They said two weeks um, and, and I'd be up and walking again. Well, after two months, I was still in very, very sad state and feeling very sorry for myself. And, and Ajahn Chah happened to come down to Bangkok and... I was, uh, I'd been staying in the, in the Ramatipati hospital and, and he came down and he was staying with one of the doctors and, and I went down to see him at his place and, uh, and I got down on the floor to pay my respects to him. I, I couldn't bow, I couldn't do the thing, you know, my knees wouldn't bend, they were stuck with scar tissue and it wasn't how I wanted it to be and, and Chai, he was sitting up there on the, on the, the bed and he, looks down at me and, and what's going on, what's happening? And, and I started, I think, oh, Lumpur, 
doctors said two weeks, it's been two months, and it shouldn't be this way. I mean, they, the operation was, you know, it was weeks and weeks ago, and uh, you know, they said it wasn't going to heal, and it just shouldn't be. And he looked at me, and there was a, this kind of puzzled look on his face, as if he was, you know, really couldn't make me out. And he said, what do you mean it shouldn't be this way? If it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. Well, from one perspective, that's very obvious. You know, anybody could say that. But why did that make such a difference? Why did it make such a difference when he said that? If it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. Well, he he wasn't addressing the level where, of course, we understand how it could be otherwise. We have the mental faculties to be able to imagine or extrapolate or fantasize about how things could be otherwise. We have those faculties. But it's when we invest that capacity with passion, with untamed passion, and an inclination or a wish or an aspiration, in fact, becomes a demand. It becomes a demand. And I need, I need this anger to go now. I need my needs to get better now. I need you to be different. And this is, uh, isn't it, so often what happens in relationship. Mm. Drunken Croatian footballers. And they're really nice, say, I don't need these guys to be anything other than what they are. Mm. They're very nice. And you're living with somebody to be able to say, well, maybe you don't say it outwardly, but inwardly, to be able to say to them, I don't need you to be anything other than what you are. I don't need you to be more virtuous. I don't need you to be more harmonious. I, I don't need you to be how I want you to be. Mm. Now, if we can't say that, resisting reality. That's another level of R&R, isn't it? <laughs> that's, not, <laughs> that's not relaxation and reflection. That's resisting reality. Yeah. Yeah. When, when we indulge in that, of course, we, we get exhausted. And there are endless situations where this keeps coming up to us, externally and internally. So I think it's a, I find this a helpful reflection. Mm. When we, we, we find ourselves in a disagreeable situation. And the resistance is something, it's not just a, a mental attitude, it's something we feel in our body as well. We meet somebody and there's a certain sort of knot. You freeze, freeze them. You're wrong for being the way you are. Mm. And the like thing with ourselves. Our shoulders go up around our ears. Our solar plexus clenches. Our jaw becomes rigid. I'm wrong for being the way I am. Well, it's all understandable. Conditioning, the programming has, has gone in and so the conventional mind has that possibility, mm. holding that view. But that's not the only option. And that's, so you have this encouragement of wise reflection, mindfulness, pull back into the awareness and feel for a larger perspective on this pattern. You know, we're, not even, we're not even fighting the resistance. We're not, we're not saying there's anything wrong with the resistance. When the resistance is what happens... Then we learn from the resistance. And that's often where we, where we meet ourselves in practice, where we're resisting. That's when we start to suffer. And that's the place for us. So it's not like we, 
We're saying there's anything wrong with resisting. It's just to recognize when there's resistance, you shouldn't be that way. I shouldn't be this way. Life shouldn't be this way. And the views that we hold of ourselves, we, we get so fixed in them. And I got a very nice letter from somebody recently. Those of you that are on the Moon Day mailing list, the Dhammasakacha mailing that I send out every new moon and full moon, will have got the verse 146 a few days ago, which uh, says, um, Why is there joy? Why is there laughter? Uh, Enshrouded in darkness, will you not seek the light? Something like that. Verse 146. And uh, in my... Uh, brief contemplation, I referred to the original story behind this verse. And uh, what is recorded is the situation. Yeah. At the time, there were uh, 500 uh, male disciples of the Buddha who were very impressed with this female disciple, Visaka. And Visaka was just an exemplary human being, uh, just a truly beautiful human being. And these 500 men all thought it would be good for their wives to emulate Risaka, and so they sent their wives along to get spiritualized by Risaka. And they kind of, I don't know, press gang their wives into, you know, you go and you know, learn from Risaka. She's how you should be. And uh, you're wrong for being the way you are. You should be like Risaka. And so these women dutifully went along to the monastery, but they all had a, you know, they all had a bottle of booze hid under their saris. And so they arrived at the monastery and promptly started getting drunk. And so there's these 500 women in the monastery just guzzling back the booze and throwing bottles everywhere and singing and dancing and clapping and jumping up and down and having a great old time and uh, totally off their face like these uh, Croatian football fans. And uh, Wisaka saw this and thought, oh, rather we will get the Buddha to give a little discourse. And so the Buddha turned up and and uh, saw the situation and, and yeah, I can see the hand of Mara in this and uh, I'm not going to let him get away with it. And so he, uh, he gave a little teaching and, and this is uh, the occasion of uttering this verse. Apparently the Buddha, he, uh, he sent forth these dark blue rays and the whole area became very dark and spooky and the 500 drunk women suddenly sobered up and, uh, what's going on here? And so then he, and then he started emitting the, the radiance of a thousand moons, and and uh, and by this time they were really listening, and so they were ready for some teaching. And and after his discourse, all five hundred of them attained to Sotapanna and became stream entry. And uh, so I related this this uh, in a little reflection. I got a nice letter from somebody who who uh, who's in the process of recovering from long-term serious uh, substance abuse, and and felt very reassured that uh, there is hope. And uh, and I think this is this is good, you know. This is the Buddhist message. There's always hope, you know, unless unless we default to two fixed views, you know. But that's not a, that's not an obligation. That's that's the choice we do, it and we keep doing it over and over. And we call it personality. You know, that's what our personality is. It's the habitual patterns of grasping, of self-definition, and just as we're attached to and fond of and and suffer from our own habitual grasping, our own personality, our own limitations. 
Well, likewise, we project that uh, pain onto others and we fix individuals and societies and the world around us. And we find or we seek security in that. The reality is this is just so. This is Human beings are like this. Human beings have always been. It's, it's, like, it's like trying to make salt taste sweet. And I reflected on that. Uh, in that situation last week. And, yeah. I think I must have been suffering under, under some sort of utopian uh, delusion for some time, thinking that, that, that real human beings are like the Buddha. But actually, when somebody asked the Buddha, was he a human being, he said, no, he wasn't. He wasn't a god, but he wasn't a human being. He was, human beings are like this. This is the way human beings behave. It's normal. There's nothing wrong with it. Unless we impose this and say, they shouldn't be this way. Of course, there can be the wish, the aspiration, the hope, the inclination for change, well-wishing. We bring this to ourselves and, and to others, of course. But what is it that happens when that helpful aspiration becomes a hindering demand? like a need. I need, and we often, we can, we can say this and we can use this in our speech, I need you to hear this from me. It's sometimes used as a, a bit of a club, a bit of a, you know, a weapon, I need you to listen to me. So, or I need to change. I wonder if it wouldn't be more subtle and more helpful if we just talked about wishing for or wanting. When we don't recognize how much we look for security in our fixed views, when we don't recognize this, we feel totally justified. And it manifests um, in indignation. You get indignant. The Buddha didn't come out and say, Oh, you wicked ladies. (laughs) You brazen hussies. (laughs) And throw the tables around and have a tantrum. No, there was an invitation, say, enshrouded in darkness. Will you not seek the light? There's an invitation. You're suffering. There is an alternative. That's the the Dhamma is an invitation to shift into another mode. But it's not an indoctrination or an intimidation. When it it is that, well then it's not Buddha Dhamma anymore. That's not helpful. But we do it, and the thing is, when we do it, well, that's the that's the that's the that's the edge. That's the, on the edge of our practice, and that's where we can learn. That's the growing tip. That's the place where we can learn, where we catch ourselves resisting reality and imposing a fixed view on reality. And reality is changing. Reality is conditioned. It's a process. Mm. Self as a, as a dynamic, uh, me. Anyway, we're not going to get rid of me by 
by taking a position against it. And that is what's going on all the time around us. And I read in the news, you heard of, uh, you heard of road rage, and uh, I think they have air rage, do they? No, have you heard of air rage on aeroplanes? People lose the plot? Well, now in New Zealand, they have surf rage. Um, there's uh, apparently the increased incidence of, of some of the older surfers who've been riding their boards on a particular beach for a while. Some of these youngsters come along and they're not welcome. And, and so you get a little surf rage. And, and as one person reported how they'd had their head held underwater for a minute and a bit longer, which is a bit long, really, to be held underwater, <laughs> uh, by this old surfy who uh, was suffering from surf rage. And so uh, it shouldn't be this way. Yeah. Young people shouldn't be this way. Yeah. Life shouldn't be this way. We've just had a, a week of, of silence here in the monastery. It wasn't totally silent. There were a few things going on. And, and uh, I've spoken with a number of members in the community of things that they were dealing with, and I know for myself uh, things I was dealing with. And it's very easy. It's very easy when you have your mind set on wanting something to... When, you're, when we're locked into the momentum of wanting and we have a view about how things should be, the retreat should be like this. It's a silent practice week. It's written in our diary. Can't you see it? It's in our diary. Silent practice week. Yeah. But it's not totally silent. And this happens and that happens. And, and if we're not careful, if we're not really here, not really doing it, not really with our own practice, then the, mind, the resistance comes up and then we don't get it there and so it goes up into the heart and then goes into the head and then the stories, the stories. Well, how many times have I told them about this and I shouldn't have to do that and why can't they do this and just because of that and, you know, and they talk about those birds in the tree out there and they have a noisy... Yeah, I mean, I, I had fantasies of, you know, taking them out. And then I remember the stories in the scriptures. I think the, the Lord had something to say about that. I think one of the rules he created when the monks went out and they were, what were they doing with, with the rooks and their, their, their Shanghai? They were taking the rooks out. And I can understand that. <laughs> it shouldn't be this way, these rooks, <laughs> spoiling my retreat early in the morning when I want to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a trivial situation, isn't it? But, um, yeah, on a larger scale, we're dealing with the, the worldly situation that we're in yeah. consistently. Yeah. If we're holding to the idea that, you know, in my case, you know, for years, the idea that, that uh, human beings are are somehow flawed when they behave like this, yeah. well then, we suffer. We can't accept, can't accept oneself, can't accept others. Upstrusts of anger, yeah. whatever the suffering is in ourselves or in others. And, mm. All of you will have, will have heard uh, 
by now of Ajahn Avinando's ailment. And it came as a, a great shock to find somebody so robust and so healthy and, what is he, 43 years old or something, is he? 43? The acupuncturist said he, he had the pulse of four kidneys. He was so strong. But now it turns out that one of them is uh, full of a malignant tumour, uh, 80% uh, malignant tumour. And I got a letter from somebody who just heard a very indignant letter. And said, you know, how could this happen? You know, why does it always happen to the nice guys? Well, this is reality. This is, you know, this is the, the body. And all of you, those of you that had time to speak with Ajahn Abhidhanda, realize that yeah, he's handling this very well. He's okay with it. He's very okay with it. And because he's not caught in saying it shouldn't be this way. This is what happens to the human body. It doesn't matter whether you're a nice guy or not. It doesn't matter whether you like somebody. It doesn't matter even if you like yourself. It doesn't matter if you're strong and healthy. This is... This is what happens, and so it seems to me that the reason I want to emphasize this tonight is a very helpful uh, reminder that whenever we start struggling, yeah, where's the resistance? Yeah. Of course, we'd like Ajahnabhinanda, or I'd like myself to be well, I'd like Ajahnabhinanda to be well, I'd like all beings to be well. And so we do with the meditation on loving kindness, may all beings be well, yes. We're all being free from suffering. But there's also the contemplation on the law of karma, you know, the cultivation of upeka, equanimity. All beings are the owners of their karma, heir to their karma, born in their karma, related to their karma, abide supported by their karma. Whatever karma they shall do, of that they will be the heirs. All beings are the owners of their karma. And uh, one of the reasons why we contemplate this is because it, it helps us uh, stay in touch with the reality you know, there is a bigger picture. If it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. So what do you mean Ajahn Abhinanda shouldn't have cancer? Why shouldn't Ajahn Abhinanda have cancer? You've got a body. Perfectly normal. It's like saying salt shouldn't taste salty. So with, specifically with regards to this question about uh, feeling threatened by these uh, intimidating upthrusts of anger. Um, yeah, there could be all sorts of explanations of, of why in the past, and you could think about this and think about that. Mm. My encouragement would be to spend a lot of time, keep coming back to, in fact, cultivating the willingness to infinitely begin again coming back to non-resistance or if there is resistance no judgment of the resistance even the resistance is just so thank you very much this evening for your attention